0: morning. Please turn in your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to cover verses 14 to 36 this morning. In my last sermon, 120 believers, including the disciples, were huddled in a house when suddenly there was the sound, probably like a tornado or hurricane, and little flames of fire settled on each of the believers. They began to speak in languages they had never learned before. The sound attracted a crowd of people from numerous nations who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. The believers, endowed by the Holy Spirit with a new boldness, went out and began to speak to people in the languages of those people's own countries. Some people probably from Jerusalem, who didn't understand any of those foreign languages, mocked them, saying they were drunk. Others asked, what does this mean? Then Peter stood up and addressed the crowd, telling them exactly what it all meant. Let's read Luke's summary of Peter's sermon, starting in verses 14 to 21. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, what follows is a quotation from Joel chapter 2. Peter continues. In the last days, God says, Blood and fire billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we pray that that same Holy Spirit who fell on the believers at Pentecost, would speak to our hearts this morning through your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. When verse 17 says that God will pour out his spirit on all people, the context is clear that this means all who have repented and believe in Jesus, including all young and old, and people of all races and nationalities, Both men and women. Joel and Peter, who quotes him, are prophesying about two ends of a long time period known in biblical terms as the last days. The beginning of that time period is seen in verse 16 when Peter says, This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In other words, Peter tells his audience that the signs and wonders they were witnessing, The sound of the violent wind, the flames of fire descending from heaven, the phenomena of people speaking in languages they've never learned. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy about the last days. The end of those last days, as seen in verse 20, will be just before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. In other words, when Jesus comes back. Biblically or prophetically speaking, the last days go all the way from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. And Peter is proclaiming both sides of that history. Let me give you an illustration. If you stand back about 50 yards or so from the south rim of the Grand Canyon, what you will see is the edge of the south rim against the background of the North Rim, which is slightly higher. What you will not see from that perspective is that in between those two rims, there is a very deep chasm called the Grand Canyon, filled with many high formations and cliffs and smaller canyons, so much so that, believe it or not, when you're hiking in the Grand Canyon, you can actually get lost down there but when you're standing 50 yards or so from the rim, you see none of that. In fact, from that perspective, you may not even realize that it's about a mile's distance between the north and south rims. Peter is seeing prophetic history that way. He sees that Joel's prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled with the signs and wonders they were seeing at Pentecost, and combines that with the blood, fire, and billows of smoke, the sun being turned to darkness, and the moon to blood that take place just before the return of Jesus. What Joel and Peter do not see, because it has not been revealed to them, is the vast chasm of history between Pentecost and Jesus' return. Verse 18 tells us that these spirit-empowered men and women will prophesy. When these men and women are talking to others in languages they've never learned, they're probably just not talking about the weather. They are apparently prophesying or preaching to the people in those people's own native languages. In verses 19 and 20, Peter, still quoting from Joel, says, I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that just before Jesus comes back, the moon will be turned into a big ball of blood plasma. It would be silly to ask whether the moon will be type O or A positive. This is called apocalyptic language. As in the book of Revelation, it is highly symbolic. So imagine, for example, that you lived in Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Your city is surrounded by high, thick, and strong walls. But the powerful Babylonian army is right outside the walls and has surrounded the city for weeks. No food has been getting into the city. Your shelves are empty, and so are the farmers' markets. People are literally starving. Suddenly flaming arrows start falling from the sky, hitting the thatched roofs on the mud, brick, and wooden buildings. Buildings all over the city are on fire, and there are great billows of smoke obscuring the sun and creating darkness in midday. As the sun sets, the smoke gives the moon a dark red appearance like blood. Eventually, the Babylonians come over the walls and start slaughtering people with their swords. Blood is flowing everywhere. If you lived back then, and we're going to use apocalyptic imagery to describe this terror, you might use the language Peter used in verses 19 and 20. I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Peter is describing the judgment that will fall just before Jesus return. He is using Joel's apocalyptic language that could just as accurately refer to the Babylonian invasion in 586 or the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., as it could to modern riots or invasions with missiles, bombers, and fighter jets. Peter's quote from Joel ended in verse 21, saying, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The context in Joel is a warning that judgment is coming upon Israel in the forms of a terrible and destructive famine. Huge swarms of locusts will destroy everything. The wheat, the barley, grapes, the figs, the apples and streams will dry up and the herds of cattle and flocks of sheep will die having no pasture left in this warning of impending judgment the people are called to repent of their sins and turn back to Yahweh their their lord god also tells the people in Joel's time that someday in the future god will pour out his spirit on all people and in those days everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved Peter explains this in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Peter's point is that the signs and wonders his audience were seeing was the outpouring of God's Spirit predicted by Joel. And the Lord on whom they should call for salvation is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you, as you yourselves know. Peter doesn't have to argue this point. Referring to those who lived in Jerusalem, Peter says they themselves know about all the signs, wonders, and miracles Jesus did. Verse 23, Peter says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross in other words jesus crucifixion was not an accident of history or a defeat by the romans it did not take god by surprise it was part of god's deliberate plan but god's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility so peter says that you you people of jerusalem With the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter not only holds the Jewish leaders responsible for Jesus' death, he also holds the crowds who rejected Jesus responsible. Some of whom were probably there at Jesus' trial yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So throughout history, many Christians have attacked and terribly persecuted Jews as Christ killers. These Christians and others conveniently neglected the fact that, what, that the Jews who did this, as it says in verse 23, they did it with the help of wicked men. These wicked men included Gentiles like Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers. Gentiles like you and me. Not only that, but not all Jews in Jesus' time agreed with his death. Not the least of whom were the 120 Jewish followers of Jesus who were there that day. And besides, holding Jews responsible for the death of Jesus is as stupid and illogical as holding all Norwegians responsible for the Viking invasions or holding Japanese today responsible for Pearl Harbor. But Peter is very bold, telling a very large audience and a potentially hostile audience, you crucified our Messiah. Peter then adds in verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. Freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on. Peter did not have to elaborate on this. It happened only a few weeks earlier, and news about the empty tomb and Jesus' appearances had undoubtedly spread like wildfire. So instead, Peter argues from the Old Testament scriptures that this was all part of God's plan. It was predicted. Starting in verse 25. Peter quotes from Psalm 16, which says, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Folks, David knew that he would die one day and that his body would decay. We know that because in 2 Samuel 7, God told David he would die someday. So why would David say in verse 27, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead? You will not let your Holy One see decay. Verses 29 to 32, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, explains what this means. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not to be abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. In 2 Samuel 7, God had promised that God would raise up a descendant of David, whose throne and kingdom would last forever. Peter says David, speaking as a prophet, was pointing beyond himself to that descendant, the Messiah. So although David died and was buried, Peter says that that one about whom David prophesied was Jesus, whom God had just raised from the dead. And in verse 32, Peter says, we, the apostles and others among the 120, are all eyewitnesses of that fact. Now, this is just a summary of Peter's sermon. My guess is that Peter explained to them how they had not only seen Jesus alive after his death, but spoke with him touched him, and even ate with him. Peter concludes his sermon in verses 36 and 37, saying, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter people and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We'll find out next week what Peter says to do. So whatever you do, don't spoil the story by reading ahead. So what do we learn from this passage? First, I would suggest that this passage gives us an insight into why Peter, the apostles, and early Christians believed in Jesus. First, they believed that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. In this one short summary of Peter's sermon, Peter quotes three prophecies. He quoted quoted others, like the one in Micah about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. Or in Psalm 22 about the Messiah being pierced, his garments divided, and lots being cast for his clothes. Or prophecies in Isaiah 53 about how he would die with the wicked and with the rich in his death. The point is that one reason Peter, the apostles and early Christians, believed in Jesus, because they were convinced that he had fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. The second reason they believed in Jesus was his miracles. Verse 22 says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Peter could stand up before a potentially hostile audience and say, you yourselves were witnesses of his miracles. It is a powerful argument when you can point to your audience and say, you yourself saw these things. You know it's true. A third reason Peter, the apostles and early Christians believed in Jesus was the resurrection. Verses 23 and 24 say, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Verse 32, Peter says the apostles were all eyewitnesses of this event, the resurrection of Jesus. That is one of the reasons they continue to believe in Jesus even after his death. But all of that is kind of a tangent. The main point of the passage this morning is that the Messiah predicted by the prophets has come and you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. Now, Peter obviously had never taken any classes on church growth. He didn't know about the best practices of seeker-friendly churches. Peter, you might offend people. You might drive people away by the abrasiveness and offensiveness of your message. You might be called a racist. I recently posted a meme on Facebook with a caption that read, If Peter were preaching today. In the picture, Peter is preaching, repent and be converted. And someone in the crowd says, more love. Another one says, you're pushing them away. Yet another one says, stop judging. Peter lays it on the line and doesn't pull any punches with this crowd. Folks, we don't want to be needlessly offensive, but the gospel is offensive to those who don't want to hear it. It tells people they are sinners and have terribly offended a holy God. It warns of the outpouring of God's terrible wrath and judgment if they do not repent. This is terribly offensive to most people today. But we dare not water it down. If we do, we are not proclaiming the gospel. But the gospel doesn't stop there. It tells of a God who loved people so much, he would become human. Allow himself to be mocked, ridiculed, spit upon whipped and tortured to death on a cross in order to save us from the consequences of our own sinful rebellion. But as Peter says in verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Both Joel and Peter add that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. To call upon the name of the Lord in Luke's writings is to repent of our sin and turn our hearts and lives over to Jesus in loving devotion. Out of gratitude for the love he demonstrated toward us on that cross. As it says in First John, we love him because he first loved us. The prophecy of Joel that Peter was quoting was a warning about the coming of God's judgment. Joel says it would be a time of destruction and terror when the storehouses are in ruins and the granaries are broken down. The time of blood and fire and smoke. And in the midst of all of this, God says in Joel 2, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Joel goes on to say, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending a calamity. Who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. The point is that while God is threatening judgment and the world is falling apart at the seams, he may yet relent if we would only return to him with our whole hearts and repent. Recent weeks have been a storm of chaos and destruction. Who knows if it's the beginning of the end or not, but if you know Christ as your Lord and King, It's time to get serious about him, to reaffirm our commitment to him, no matter what may come. If you're not a follower of Christ, it's time to repent of your sin and turn your heart and life over to Jesus as your Lord and King. And then demonstrate that you're truly serious about that by getting baptized. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of these troubling times, you are our rock. Help us to keep our focus on you. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us boldness and help us to be firm in our commitment to you. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not repented of their sin and turned their hearts and lives over to you in faith, give them an unrest in their hearts until they seek peace with you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.